Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national women's current affairs program produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Anya Saravanan. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past, present and becoming, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. In September 2020, a private member's bill aiming to criminalise coercive control was introduced in the New South Wales Parliament. Penalties under the bill includes jail terms of up to 10 years. Coercive control is broadly defined as a pattern of behaviours used to intimidate, humiliate, surveil and control another person. A number of high-profile family and domestic violence advocates and campaigners have thrown their support behind the bill and behind the idea of criminalising coercive control in Australia more widely. In response to these advocates and the criminalisation campaign in general, 3CR Community Radio's Tuesday Breakfast Show held a panel event titled Safety for Who? Abolitionist Perspectives on Criminalising Coercive Control. This panel was held on the 11th of November 2020 and aimed to explore the anti-criminalisation arguments with those most affected and at risk. The panel, as the name suggests, also explored how abolitionist perspectives can inform the way we address gender-based violence. In today's show, we will hear part of this panel discussion. To listen to the rest of the discussion, you can visit www.3cr.org.au forward slash Tuesday hyphen breakfast. Please be aware that today's show contains descriptions of physical, emotional and sexual violence. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please contact Lifeline on 131114 or lifeline.org.au. 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732 or your state-based service. I'd like to welcome our guests, Tabitha Lean, Georgia Mantle and Monique Hamid. Thank you all for being here. And a question to get us going, could you please uh, tell us a bit about yourselves and how you got to the politics you have today, perhaps starting with Tabitha? Yata everyone, my name is Tabitha, or as my ancestors know me, Gudin Minyan. I'm a Gunditjmara woman born and raised on Ghana Yurta, and I'd like to acknowledge the Ghana people on whose land that I stand today. And I want to acknowledge my brothers and sisters sitting in cages in their own country this evening, as well as say happy neighbour to any mob that are tuning in today. I'm Gunditjmara, so my country spans in southwestern areas of the land they now call Victoria. And it's been a long time since I've been home on country um, and country is calling me, but the state won't let me travel. So my spirit calls go unanswered and will do for a while. I'm a criminalised black woman who's uh, spent almost two years in Adelaide's prison for deviant women and a cumulative two years on home detention. 
and I'm still tethered to the state on parole, or as I like to call it, open-air prison. I have always been interested in prisons and abolishing prisons, perhaps not as aggressively as I am today. I used to volunteer in visitor centres providing outreach services to both people incarcerated and families visiting loved ones. And then I ended up on the other side of the fence. And for a long time, I was really sad. And then I just got really bloody angry. I was angry at the things that were happening to me, the things I was seeing, the black faces that I was seeing coming back and forth picture prison. And I was just really angry at the state, angry at colonialism, and angry at the system for reducing me to a number. I became 177057. And even though I'm out in the community on parole, I still go by that number within the system. So anger is a really good emotion for me. And so my survival instincts kicked in and the fight came back. And the day I walked out of those prison gates, I looked back and I said, I will be back, but not back behind the bars. I was going to go back and tear that place down brick by brick. So... I'm black and my people have been fighting the enslaving and incarcerating of our people for 232 years. So we're not new to these politics, but we are true to them. So all of the work that I'm doing now, as you say, how I came to this place, is really just a continuation of the actions of the resistance movements of my ancestors. So it's by their grace that I do this work. Thanks so much for sharing that, Tabitha. Georgia, would you like to go next? Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Tabitha. Um, I would also like to acknowledge country. Today I'm joining from the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I'd like to pay my respects to the Elders past and present and acknowledging the continual struggles of the um, Gadigal people and acknowledge the amazing triumphs of the Redfern community especially, which I'm living right near and I'm privileged to work in an incredibly strong black community that have led fights for land rights in this country and continue to struggle against colonisation. In terms of how I came to, I guess, be an abolitionist or be a student of abolition, um, I actually don't really have a a clear-cut time. I think sometimes people say that, oh, it was this, it was this one thing and and it changed them. Um, For me, I think it has been a subtle progression to these politics. Um, I think I was always interested in criminal justice, but from a very liberal perspective. And then I actually think part of what pushed me to seek out these alternatives that abolition provides was when harm was committed against myself and when I continued to see harm committed within my community and I thought there has to be some other alternative than what we're being offered right now. And thankfully, there was this history of incredible, mainly Black, Indigenous women who had been writing about this, had been talking about this very thing for years before I was even born. And I was able to access these resources, these voices and started to see abolition as that very thing that I was looking for. It was a way to sort of channel my optimism, my politics that is embedded in optimism, into this imagining of a better future. 
But in terms of also practical campaigns, I've been involved in um, campaigns based in Sydney against Black deaths in custody for um, a few years now. And I think that was also one of the many things that also influenced the way I sort of viewed this system and attempts to reform it as ultimately futile. And so abolition was the thing that I identified as the chance to go beyond what we're already doing. Thanks, Georgia. And Monique? So my name's Monique. Um, I'm currently on Woiwurrung land, so I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and also acknowledge the ongoing fight against colonisation. In terms of what to share about who I am, um, I wrote some points, but it was such a good question to sit back and think, you know, what has really mattered in terms of what got me here to these politics. And I agree, I think it was a gradual thing for me. It didn't feel like a one particular moment. Um, but most of my role has been um, in training and facilitation, and I've done that through different volunteer work and also in paid work in the prevention sector um, for women's health and family violence. Um, and in my most recent role, I work as the training and volunteer coordinator at a service called WIRE, where I run a nine-week training where we train up support workers for the phone room. And a big part of that is talking about a lot of the issues that callers call in with, so um, family violence, family law, housing, um, mental health. And so it's felt really important to think about how to do that work within a prison abolitionist framework and put these issues into the larger context when we're talking about violence and why it occurs. So I guess that's what I'm doing now. In terms of how I got here, I think the politics I have today, I think a big part of it was the different community projects I was able to be a part of um, in my early 20s. And so shout out to Undercurrent Victoria. I feel like that had a huge impact on my politics, um, getting to run workshops in the Western suburbs with high school students around healthy relationships and understanding what it meant to do that within the prison abolitionist framework was huge for me. Um, and as part of that time, I got to go to the Sisters Inside conference and I just got to meet a whole lot of people that were doing amazing, often unpaid community work because it was their lives and, um, you know, no one was going to pay them to do it, but it was about survival and really being so inspired by that work. And I think thinking about all of the things that have influenced me that I've read it's often the voices of Black and Indigenous women around the world who have been writing about abolition and what it means, um, as well as trans and gender diverse people, sex workers, drug users. I feel like these are the voices that are so centred in this kind of work. And they're, the, I guess, the activists and thinkers and organisers that have really influenced me over the last 10 years. Thanks, Monique. It's it's really um, it makes a lot of sense to hear each of you describe the kind of like the individual and the cultural and the identity experience kind of things that lead up to you getting to where you are today. And Monique, you mentioned the doing work within organisations and how to juggle prison abolition frameworks. And I think that's something that hopefully we'll get to discuss later in this in this conversation tonight. So we might jump to our next question. Police prisons and the criminal justice system generally have been said to reproduce patterns of violence against women and gendered violence. Would you agree with this? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to start having been in prison and involved with the police. And I think when people think about carceral violence, they think about sexual violence or physical violence between fellow prisoners. And, of course, that happens, but the grossest and largest and most ubiquitous type of violence is actually perpetrated by the agents of the carceral state. 
as well as structural violence by the system. Hell, even the architecture of prisons, courts and cells and watch houses contain violence by their very occupation on stolen and sacred lands. So when I think about the sort of violence of police, prisons and criminal justice systems, I think about the removal of your complete body autonomy, being told what to wear, what and when to eat, when to sleep, when to rise, when to walk, who to talk to, when you can shower, limiting your access to the outside world, isolating and exiling you from the people who care about you, monitoring your communications, not allowing you to cut your hair or alter your appearance in any way, stripping you against your will. And like all of that sounds like an abusive relationship, right? And that's exactly what it is. I mean, I might have divorced an abusive husband, but I'm now very much in an abusive relationship, only this time it's with my captor, my abuser is the state. And I think that's obscene. And what's worse, the state state perpetrates this daily violence inflicted on my body and it's done in the name of the broader public. I mean, this system oppresses, subjugates and brutalises me in the name of justice, your justice, to keep all of you safe from people like me. So when I was inside, I didn't meet a single person inside who had not suffered at the hands of a man, whether that was child abuse, sex abuse, domestic violence, rape, sexual harassment, every woman had suffered. And what we do is we take those women who are fought to rise every time they were knocked down and we put them in a cage and we replicate those violent relationships. And to be honest, I have never felt more unsafe in my life than when I'm trying to breathe in front of a cop or when I was standing in the docks at the Supreme Court watching on as a jury, supposedly a panel of my peers adjudicating my worth and in the cells at the mercy of men emboldened by the arbitrary state powers. And so part of the reason that the prison industrial complex is so strong is that it's intertwined with and propped up by so many sectors and organisations. And I think, you know, that's it's, it's all pervading. So this violence is continually perpetrated against women, yet here we are told that they're putting in place these legislations to protect them. What Tabitha said at the beginning there is really important as well, that um, police and prisons, they don't just replicate gendered violence, they represent and are a source of colonial violence. And that's really important to remember. I think on stolen land, any system like prison prison police and governments are acts of violence and continue acts of colonisation. I think also I can't speak to the experience of being incarcerated, but as someone who has suffered physical violence from the police, most often during protests, I can say that they absolutely do replicate very sort of stock standard ideas of violence against women, whether that be male police officers going out of their way to touch female protesters' breasts and ass, and then commenting on female protesters' appearances as ways to humiliate and degrade us, they completely reproduce these patterns of abuse. And yet, where are we supposed to turn to? Because we're told that the police are where we go. We are suffering from this violence. So, yes, I think they absolutely produce that. I think if you look up the definition of coercive control, it is a pattern of acts, assault, threats or humiliation and intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm or punish people. 
that is exactly what the prison system is set up to do. So I think that completely um, reproduces patterns of gendered and colonial violence and we need to start seeing prisons not as the answer to violence but as a site of violence themselves. Yeah, I guess just to echo what's already been said, I think the criminal justice system is sold as this way to keep us safe by this idea that we can control and remove this this idea of dangerous people or dangerousness and just put them in this other place so they can't hurt anyone. And there's this real logic that punishing people, kicking people out of community is the way that we're going to solve problems and so little evidence to show that that actually works and so much evidence to show that that actually increases harm um, for everyone treats people as disposable um, and really works off this fear, this fear that you see um, coming up again and again, that there's something out there that we have to be afraid of. There's these people that we need to lock up that, you know, are based in these really old um, narratives, uh, racist narratives. And so when you look at who's actually incarcerated, like has been mentioned, there's an overrepresentation of particular groups. Um, We've all seen some of these statistics around you know, the percentage of incarcerated people that are Aboriginal, Aboriginal children. There's a particularly shocking statistic that says Aboriginal kids are 6% of the population, but 60% of the prison population. And I feel, you know, different ways about quoting those stats because it's people we're talking about, not statistics. But I think there's this real um, effort to try and get people to understand, like, who's actually being targeted by these laws? Who are the people that end up in prisons? And as was mentioned, a lot of women who are incarcerated have experienced violence themselves um, and have then been further criminalised when trying to keep themselves safe or seek support. Uh, I think in the US there was a statistic that it's around 90% of women in prison who are survivors of domestic violence, and I don't know what that would be in Australia, but I'm suspecting that it's also incredibly high. A stat came out recently that said 37% of the Victorian prison population are remandees, which means that you know, they haven't even received sentencing. And that's such, that's doubled in the last five years. So, you know, I think when you look at these statistics, it becomes really clear that the people inside prisons are not uh, more dangerous than the people outside prisons. That's not how it's actually working in practice. And it's not how it's been designed to work. And I often think about, you know, what would it actually look like if you locked up the most dangerous people You know, if you could even find who those people were, the people who are causing the most harm, despite the rise in criminalisation of certain behaviours, you know, if you're wealthy and white, you're not going to get criminalised for your drug use or it's highly unlikely that you will. So, um, you know, certain people are kept safe throughout this and it's the same communities that get targeted. And I guess as my last point, I wanted to talk about what it looks like in the phone room when we talk about these sorts of things. And when people call us, they'll often talk about their interactions with police and the prison system. Um, And there's so many reasons that people feel uncomfortable or unwilling to contact the police, despite there being often a really huge onus on on the individual to contact police in crisis situations. That's often what they'll be told to do by crisis services as the first thing. I've spoken to people on temporary visas who are really scared of involving the police because it will they're scared it will lead to their visas not being renewed or deportation. It could be that their partner or themselves are trans and they're fearful that involving the police will lead them to experience further violence or transphobia. Or if you're experiencing or your partner's experiencing psychosis and what it will mean to involve the police in that situation, will it actually keep people safe or will it escalate the situation and behaviour? So it doesn't actually give people 
back control of their situation often. And we try and have conversations in the training about this, about where, you know, what people's ideas are around the police, why people might go to the police, that idea that they will help regain control over the situation and provide this sense of safety and discuss that, that point that often that's not the case in reality. And I think, you know, just to end, to recognize that it is such a complex and complicated discussion to have often um, in my workplace, because on the one hand, it's ridiculous to think about putting someone in a cage to stop violence, to use violence, to, to stop violence happening in the first place. But at the same time, we talk to many people that have chosen to engage with police to keep themselves safe and wanting to also respect those decisions that people have made. And I think at the same time, we can also criticise the system, but have that sensitivity and respect for people and the ways that they've decided to keep themselves safe. Women on the Line On community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. You just heard part of the panel discussion organised by 3CR Community Radio's Tuesday Breakfast Show about abolitionist perspectives on criminalising coercive control. We now return to the discussions. So the next question kind of going to what you're saying, Georgia, about other services kind of funneling people into contact with the police. So part of the reason... Uh, the prison industrial complex is strong is that it is intertwined and propped up by so many other sectors and organizations as has been pointed out in your experiences is that relevant to the family violence sector and could coercive control laws operate any differently to existing family violence and gender-based violence laws yeah so sort of as i was saying an, an example is victim services which provides victim survivors with one of the things that they can provide them with is financial compensation, um, but also things like psychological services, which I think is fantastic. They're things that can allow a woman to remove herself from um, that situation because money is a huge barrier to that and also provide support in the form of counselling. But that system that is set up is inherently linked to the police because to be able to do that, you need to have a police report. And I think there are countless other examples of that in working with housing, with public housing. If we have a client who needs to move from their housing property because they're in danger, we need evidence. We need countless amounts of evidence. And one of the things that housing will value so much higher than anything that I could write, like a support letter, is a letter from the police or an AVO. It is structured that the police's voice and the police's opinion on things like violence against women is still just held so much higher, not only against like the victim or survivor, but also against other services. Do I think there's a possibility that we could respond to coercive control in a different way? Sure. Obviously, that's why I'm an abolitionist. But I do think that at the moment, the way that the legislation is, it's still that, you know, you have to go to the police, you have to prove they have to do an investigation and they have to be satisfied that this has actually happened. So I really can't see the current laws that are being proposed in New South Wales as operating any differently than the ones that already have, uh, that already exist, where the burden of proof is on the victim and survivor and the police's judgment and their quote-unquote expertise 
continues to be prioritised over that of women. Yeah, look, I made some notes for this question, but because I was going to, this morning I made this decision that I was going to be very considered in the words that I use. I was going to moderate my language because I really didn't want carceral feminists to come at me for being, for critiquing the fact that they're telling people that women to call the cops when they're in these situations. But, you know, on the 2nd of August in 2014, police responded to a call-out at Miss Do's house. Her partner had violated an apprehensive violence order. When the cops arrived, they arrested both of them because they realised Miss Do had an outstanding warrant. So Miss Do had done what she'd been told by family violence services to call the cops. And what ended up happening, she was detained and killed in custody. So when people ask me, do we think that it could work differently? It has to bloody work differently. It has to. Because white carceral feminists can sit around all they like and say, call the cops. So for my mob, calling the cops means death. So, yeah, I've gone rogue off my nose. But that's the reality is we have to do differently. We have to do better. And these conversations that we have are all really polite and wonderful. But how mob are dying? Like, we don't actually have the luxury of time to sit around and, you know, kind of, news about whether we can do it differently we actually have to our lives depend on you all doing it differently yeah i've got notes here as well but i don't know how many of these notes have already kind of been touched on but something that i thought about with this question was the history of the sector that i'm working in so whether it's you know family violence sector women's health sector um so that would include i guess support workers health professionals social workers and it's not just this particular sector but looking at this sector there is this history, it's dominated by white women mainly, um, and there's re this real history of it being this helping profession and good intentions being the most important part of it. And I think it's still a workforce that's really dominated by often young white women um, who genuinely want to do good but aren't necessarily asked to have that systemic analysis of their relationship to power. And so it becomes really hard to talk about the harmful effects of the systems we might be upholding through our work and the way that the family violence sector is, um, you know, helping to enact that state violence. You know, always that even now you hear gender as being the main focus. We hear about gender inequality as the main driver. Um, and it's so hard to talk about other forms of violence because it's seen as going off track. You know, if we want to talk about racial violence um, or other types of violence. There's an article that I always come back to by a woman called Connie Burke, who talks about in the anti-violence movement, our visions and missions and goals are often stated in terms of what we want to eradicate, but rarely articulated as what we want to build. And I think I really see that in this sector. It's all about we want to end this particular violence, but not as much discussion around, well, what do we want to build in its place? Um, and how do we actually build those supportive and loving and equitable relationships that aren't based on systems of oppression? And that's all for Women on the Line today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. To listen to the rest of the panel discussion, you can visit www.3cr.org.au forward slash Tuesday hyphen breakfast. Women on the Line is a national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is produced by Ripley Cavera.
Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. See you next time.